Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it has just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time and it's Jan Bartlett. I'll be here until six tonight. Today is Brazil heading towards dictatorship. We'll be speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. The Palestine Fun Run is coming up in November. One of the organisers is Mohammed Hoffman. Linus under review in Malaysia and a cement project in Timor-Leste under wraps and more with environmentalist Lee Tan and Paul Gra. Barrett Gold's mine in PNG. It's called the world's worst mine. And I'll be speaking with Catherine Cummins, who's the coordinator of Mine Watch Canada. But first, he's still here, Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we recall last week we were forced to criticise the tax office for taking steps to hurt poor caring employers, poor great corporations, by questioning whether they are meeting their legal tax obligations when they all assert righteously they do meet their legal tax obligations. For instance, irresponsible threats like looking at whether it can circumvent legal privilege by investigating advice given by the big, big four international accounting corporations allowing their clients to meet their legal tax obligations. Just another example of the department poking its nose where it doesn't belong into other people's business, making the great corporations feeling a little less legally privileged than they have been feeling. Tax. Well, this week, some thankful relief. Interviewed on AM Thursday, Big Supremo scuttled them more last son was in full flight, eulogising the giant benefits to all of us of slashing taxes on small and medium-sized businesses, he calls them, interspersing his wisdom with some brilliant reposts at the socialists, leaving the nation in stitches with the socialist five-point plan is tax, 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 tax and tax and other inspired witticisms but then the interviewer had the audacity to ask when will the giant benefits lead to higher wages leaving a spluttering scuttle them talking about the importance of small and medium business the very heart of our economy and they would invest and reinvest and, and on he went about what they'd do with their government windfall other than answering the actual question, giving the surely false impression that he didn't have a clue because he used to be big economic guru so he knows all about these things and we'd never suggest he didn't care for whenever wages do go up, well ever so slightly as in the annual lowest of low paid case or evil unions suggest they should go up, Scuttle them expresses his concern along with the caring employers that the country simply can't afford this inflation pay rise that will cost job. One worker's pay rise is another worker's job because their hearts go out to the unemployed. So as he sputtered on and it was obvious there was no chance of an answer, the interviewer took him to a different matter. 
Remember when then big supremo Malcolm Tunnel Bull, with his usual show of courage, caved into the love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus mob post the marriage equality plebiscite and appointed former minister for concentration camps razor wire and sink the boats Philip Rubbish to protect their rights to love thy neighbour as long as thy neighbour was not of the same sex. And now we learn the government has been sitting on Philip's rubbish for five months. Perhaps we need to ask why, but amid reports, the report recommends allowing good love thy neighbour schools not to love the wrong sort of neighbour. Scuttle them did a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Queen Victoria impersonation in the interview trying to explain all this. Homosexuals, lesbians or, uh, or uh, any other descriptions... Yes, poor old Scuttlebem couldn't bring himself to say these sinful heretical words. Although, let's be fair, he did go one better than Her Majesty and managed to say lesbian. One of the warm, caring, love-thy-neighbour mob whose religious freedoms need protecting, Erica Betts on the bosses, was so incensed at the attacks on religious freedoms he threw himself into international affairs by declaring those who had opposed and alleged false, false, false accusations of that great believer in the dear baby Jesus, now U.S. of Supreme Court Justice Bruta, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, no, I didn't, will have to live with their consciences for the rest of their lives. Because obviously, from his vantage point in Tasmania, Eric knows Brett didn't, and therefore knows the accusers and the corroborators of Brett's student behaviour were sinful liars bound for the fires of hell. Also confirming our knowledge that Love Thy Neighbour Eric has such great respect for gender equality for women. If anything did happen, it would have happened because this provocative, or more correctly, these provocative Jezebels, wore up inappropriate skimpy outfits asking for what they got. Uh, which they didn't get. Outfits that are an insult to the dear baby Jesus. Someone wiser than me might like to explain why Eric thought it necessary to get into the issue at all, other than to provide another little gift for satire. But back to Scuttlebem's tax cuts. No gift, but we can look forward to unflinching commitment to socialism if Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, makes it to Big Supremo. Thursday morning, he firmly committed the Socialists to opposing the tax cuts. Before the media suggested that policy could cause him a fair bit of trouble with the caring business class, he would have to move to rescind the cuts if he became Big Supremo, and the caring business, business class wouldn't like that too much. So by early afternoon, he firmly committed the Socialists to having no position at all. We will need to look at the figures. And this before he's even elected. At this rate, he could make Malcolm look like the epitome of firm resolve and unequivocal principle. Unequivocal principle and U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the paw, go hand in hand, are synonymous. Highlighted as an advisor informed Donald that a dissenter had been murdered in an embassy in Turkey. This is a disgrace, an attack on all of us, all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. The biggest attack ever. Evil, evil Iran will not get away with this. It will fill the full power of uh, uh, Mr. Supremo. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's our close friend Saudi.
as I was saying, clearly we will need proof. We will need more information. Saudi loves democracy like me. And then Donald thought maybe he should say if the more information showed the Saudi Democrats had had a bit to do with the murder, the US of would respond with harsh measures. Um, I like denying then the billions of dollars of train killer merchants of death merchandise they buy off the US of. No, we cannot do that because that would hurt those great US of merchants of death companies, great corporations, great companies, great lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. Uh, so what harsh measures do you have in mind? You'll have to wait and see. We'll see. We'll see. But I could ring my very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, and tell him we oppose going around the world killing people we don't like. And then Donald did ring the Crown Prince, who told him he too opposed going around the world and killing people we don't like, which with these two great friends are mostly the same people. And Donald's latest unequivocal principle explanation via the Crown Prince is that some rogue assassins infiltrated the embassy and Donald would hit those rogue assassins with the harshest measures ever for embarrassing his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince. And Donald highlighted the most pertinent point of all. If the US of didn't flog those billions of merchants of death merchandise, someone else would. Some bad guy someone else would. Which brings us to the tragic departure from the UN of the US of the UN of the world of Nikki, hail to the good guys, hell to the bad guys. Won't she be missed? Given someone said she had been keeping Donald in check, the mind boggles at what she might have come up with if she hadn't. Donald and Nikki's balanced views on the world they rule are also axiomatically true blue Aussie's very own independent foreign policy. Thus, the necessity for true blue Aussie to relocate our Zion embassy to Jerusalem and recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Zion and of all the lands Zion occupies to ensure the security of Zion. Lands that belong to nobody because the people who live there are nobodies. The stateless Palestinian non people who being stateless and non-people have no right to live anywhere and Zion is doing its best to sort that land grabbing international crime out but Donald and Nikki and Scuttle, their many Zion advisor David Chama all promise, uh, promise us the US of and therefore true blue Aussie policy will not prevent a two state solution um, two state solution Scuttle then certainly there's the US of and there's Zion uh, and, and what about the Palestinians? Uh, what about the Palestinians? And as France is sued in the world court for the death and disease and destruction from its nuclear tests in the Pacific, it said it denied responsibility for the death and disease due to its testing. Again, leaving us to ask, well, who was responsible? Presumably the victims were just being there on their Pacific islands in French territory. Similar logic as the great responsible bankers have been appearing before a parliamentary committee. Remember, this was the way to bring them into line without the need for a totally unnecessary Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission. And due to the totally unnecessary Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission, they were forced to make their predictable grovelling apologies. With which bank, which used to be our bank, Supremo met common practice, explaining the reasons for the rip-offs, concluding with, and in some instances, greed. 
Matt, finally, you could help us here. Could you tell us which instances were not greed? Good afternoon. And that's Mr Kevin Healy, and you can catch him if you're up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning with City Limits 3CR. It's now 12 minutes past 4 o'clock. Commentators are warning that Brazil, the fifth most populous country in the world, could return to a dictatorship with the possible election of far-right demagogue Jair Bolsonaro, a former army officer who has openly praised the Brazilian military dictatorship, which lasted from 1964 to 1985. And he's also labelled a racist, misogynist and a homophobe. And that if he wins, it could be an extremely dangerous moment for Brazil. To talk about Brazil past, present and a possible future, I spoke earlier today with Professor Emeritus James Petrus in New York. James, you'd like to dedicate it to a dear friend of yours. Yes, I'd like to dedicate this to uh, Professor Morris Morley, a friend of mine for the last 50 years. He came to study with me in the United States, and then he went on to become a superb scholar and wrote the classical book on Cuba called uh, Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Cuba. So I would like to remember Morris with this interview. We're talking first about Brazil, and it's barely three decades since the ending of the brutal military dictatorship would lasted, which lasted for two decades. And there are fears that Brazil could descend once again into dictatorship. Can you talk about that earlier period, why it happened, and the impact on the society and the country? Yes, Brazil uh, went through a period of of dictatorship that went through cycles. It was a very repressive period in the 60s, and then they sponsored a alliance between big business and the state apparatus and the private sector in a uh, unholy alliance that led to what they called the miracle during the uh, 70s, high growth, that went into crisis in 19 early 80s and forced the government to withdraw from uh, active control over the government, but it never was punished for the torture and murders that they committed, and uh, they retained a, a great deal of uh, leverage, even though the country went into a uh, electoral mode. And uh, subsequently, when uh, the left or center-left came to power, they still were very influential, and uh, that led up to the recent elections in which the uh, far right won with the backing of the military and promised that the military uh, rulers, the military elite, would retain a very important role in the new government by uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Can we talk a bit more about the ending of the well, you say it never really ended, but the end of the dictatorship. The Workers' Party came into power. What was that period yeah. like? That was the early formation of the Metal Workers' Union, the first challenge of the uh, military, which when it took power in 1964, it abolished all the free trade unions and uh, agrarian movements. And it only was at the begin end of the 70s that you began to get a revival of the labor movement led by uh, Lula da Silva 
and uh, they led to the uh, organized mass movement in the trade unions, particularly the metal workers and the foundation of a new confederation, which uh, played a very prominent role in the growth of the Workers' Party. However, trade unions began to uh, lose in militancy and grow in collaboration with the government and the employers in, in a uh, tripartite negotiating process. And the Workers' Party that was originally tied with the trade unions became itself a much more electoral party and much less militant. And when Lula got elected, it was a time of a commodity boom in prices, and he was able to combine a, uh, a welfare program, but with the collaboration of the bankers and multinationals. And this uh, alliance went on for about from 2003 till about 2010. At the end of uh, Lula's election, uh, the economy was starting to suffer from the decline in commodity prices and the, his uh, protege, Dilma Rousseff, who was elected, began a policy of austerity and created circumstances which uh, deteriorated their mass support. And subsequently, uh, the conservatives with whom they were originally allied took the step of impeaching Dilma and putting in power a, uh, the vice president. He proceeded to uh, try to dismantle the whole social agenda and privatize the economy. And that was the lead-up to the uh, current elections and uh, the rise of the far right in response to uh, general corruption, crime, but most of all to dismantle the uh, social agenda, pensions, salaries, uh, and other of the uh, benefits that the uh, working class got. And this new government has threatened to put the military into a foremost position in the current government when uh, in Bolsonaro, in, in about two weeks, uh, runs for office, and he won by a 46-29 margin. So it's pretty likely he will get elected and Brazil will have a far-right government in power. Did the, the recent Olympic Games have any impact on what's happening now? Well, what happened was that was a pharaonic uh, expenditures by uh, Lula and his uh, protege, Dilma. They spent billions of uh, reales in building up this uh, showcase operation, the, the World Games, the Olympics. The people were very resentful because a lot of the... Uh, Medical facilities, educational facilities uh, were wanting, and there were demonstrations at the time, and I think they had an impact in uh, some of the uh, hostility that emerged and some of the discontent among the people that originally voted for the Workers' Party. So it was a really bad move to build billion reale projects when there was very important basic needs of the people, and they were deprived of this. And uh, as a result, I think this was not a positive gesture. Can you talk about the jailing of Lula? 
Yes, this is uh, part of the political repression that started. Originally, they were going to go after the uh, politicians that had got kickbacks on some of the big projects that took place, construction projects, and some of the biggest construction companies in Latin America, Obrecht, as it's called, bought off uh, politicians across the bo- across the range of parties and included some of the workers' parties, uh, deputies and, and Congress people. Then they went after uh, Dilma, and uh, even though it had nothing to do with corruption, they accused her of uh, juggling the budget expenditures in different categories, which is nothing unusual for any uh, person that works with budgets. But they have succeeded in uh, winning over the uh, the uh, courts. And that was another thing, the uh, Lula government, the appointments that uh, in, the, in the judiciary were very conservative people who turned against the uh, government. And subsequently, uh, these judges went after Lula and nothing that he did directly with corruption. He was uh, living in an apartment that was lent to him by one of the uh, owners of apartments overlooking a beach, and he had not taken any money and not involved in any bribery, but they accused him of uh, occupying an apartment that was financed by an owner who was accused of being corrupt. Basically, they eliminated Lula because he was the only candidate who could beat the far right in the election. And so it was in a way of clearing the way for the far right to come to power and jailing Lula and using the court system as a way to purge him. Where did Bolsonaro come from? Bolsonaro is an old hack politician. This business of, of his being an outsider and a new politician, it's not true. He was in Congress for 20 years. He only passed one piece of legislation of insignificance. He was a non-entity and suddenly, with the backing of big business and a rabble-rousing campaign and uh, exploiting some of the corruption that was going on and certainly playing up the fact that law and order violence in the streets was increasing, and uh, he exploited that and the uh, general corruption. And over the last... Uh, Four months, he went up from uh, 10% to 20% to 30% to 40%, and that was in part due to the uh, exploitation of issues and the uh, backing by the National Association of Agriculturalists, the bankers in Sao Paulo and the big city uh, industrialists. They all back him because he's promised to freeze wages for 20 years and reduce pensions, increase the age of retirement, and attack all the uh, social agendas that the labor movement has supported. So while the media have played up the fact that he's uh, in favor of torture, he support the military dictatorship, and that may have some impact on some of the voters, but the real uh, social base of the government is in big business, which sees him as someone who can turn the clock around and open the country to total privatization 
of the economy and handing over the resources to the upper class and the multinationals. It's said to be the seventh largest economy in the world. What are the resources that it has? Well, Brazil is one of the biggest agro-exporters in the world. It meets soya, timber, cotton, and other basic commodities. They have a manufacturing sector of some significance, but it doesn't really employ a very big percentage of the population. So Brazil is a mixed economy, but its exports are predominantly commodities. And I think, and minerals. Oil has is, is now been privatized, and the uh, iron has been privatized, and these are the basic underpinnings of the government. So it's an agro-mineral exporting country with a manufacturing sector that is linked to uh, multinationals, automobiles, steel, and other sectors. How would you describe race relations? Race relations uh, on the paper and according to the uh, propaganda is, uh, is very much an integrated society, but that's not the case. When I lectured at the university several years ago, it was about 95% white and 4% mixed and 1% which we call afro Brazilians. So there's a great deal of race discrimination, racism that doesn't get seen because of the emphasis on carnival and these uh, large public displays of entertainment. But in the uh, income ladder, you'll find mostly the higher up you go, the more European the uh, characterization of the uh, people. When you go to the bottom of the political and social hierarchy, it's largely African and Indian population. And where do women fit into that social hierarchy? There is a great deal of violence against women. It's notorious, and especially where it doesn't receive much public attention until recently. And uh, this was evident in the high percentage of women that reported uh, suffering family violence from their uh, supposed uh, mates. There is a great deal of discrimination of women in the higher echelons of the corporate world. There is very few women that play any major role in agriculture, which is the key sector, nor in the mineral sector. So women that have some social status and, and class uh, rising, a class ascendancy, they're mostly found in the middle class. A few exceptional women who are from families of wealthy themselves occupied positions of wealth. But the uh, social mobility is very limited to women serving in middle management, middle range occupations. And uh, they are mostly confined to the health and educational sector. The runoff election, as you said, is at the end of the month. Bolsonaro has stated that he would not accept any result that says that he did not win. What's your comment on well, that? 
th- that's that's part of his bluster and and aggression. I, I don't know if he has the military behind him and the coup d'état. I think really now the elite feels they can win the elections and they want him to shut his mouth and talk more about elections and partnerships and and coalitions and look toward setting up a uh, business agenda which is directed at free markets and deregulation. And uh, this initial rhetoric, this uh, this appeal to dictatorship has now been lessened, especially by the business elite, which wants to bring him in the fold in a way that makes him acceptable to the business people who had doubts about his extremism. The military, the army in Brazil, is it a well-financed army? At the highest levels it is, and uh, at the... Uh, at the lowest levels, it's, it's, I would say, a mediocre to low-income group. But those are largely recruited from the lower classes, and they're used as the uh, shock troops in the poor neighborhoods. They go in with machine guns and, and high-powered rifles. So the generals have uh, two things going from high salaries and also... Uh, they have many connections with business, so when they retire, they rotate into out of military into security agencies for the for the extremely wealthy and setting up as partnerships wherever they can link business and their uh, ties to the uh, military industrial complex. The jailing of Lula obviously allowed Bolsonaro to come forward as he has. What's Lula's future? How long has he got in jail? Well, Lula has had a following, but it's been difficult to transfer most of his supporters to the new government of Haddad. Haddad is a moderate politician who has uh, very little uh, initial following. He's gone up from single digits to close to 30% in the uh, first round. But it's, uh, his tactics in the, for the uh, final round has been to moderate his policies and try to win over sectors of the business and the upper middle class, which is, I think, a self-defeating strategy. There is about 30% of the electorate that hasn't voted, and I suspect that most of those are low-income people. And if Haddad goes toward the center and the middle class, he's not going to attract that population. The people that voted for Lula have not all transferred to the new candidate, and that's a big problem. So Lula's influence has declined in in being in jail and having a candidate that doesn't have the economic program to win them over. So Lula may have transferred a third of his electorate to the alternative candidate, but I don't think it's enough to defeat uh, Bolsonaro in the election. And is Lula finished as a politician? I don't think he's finished. The question is when he can get out of jail and and secure a pardon. There wasn't a huge turnout. Mobilizations or strikes or direct action which might have forced his release from prison. I think this is a sign of the times. Lula was popular 
but he didn't have a uh, fighting force, nor did he have a plan. Was there a plan of action? He went through the court system. He went through uh, the polls and appeals, but there was no major general strike, for example, that might have mobilized people to uh, in behalf of him. So it's not clear how long he will stay in jail. Whether there's a political possibility, that's possible. But with Bolsonaro, I don't think they'll ever let him out of jail unless uh, there is some massive outpouring of support. Now, there is one big question, Mark, and that is Bolsonaro doesn't have a party. He has a small party. He has possibility allies from the right. Most of them are deputies and uh, and legislators who themselves were very corrupt, which I think will uh, modify the voters' view of Bolsonaro as a uh, anti-corruption politician. I think Bolsonaro's economic agenda is going to polarize the country, and I think the uh, measures that he will take against the populace working class, farmers, small businessmen uh, will uh, wear thin very quickly. I think by the end of the first year, Bolsonaro will be seen as a, uh, uh, without the mass support that he's getting in the elections. But I'd imagine he'd have mass support in Washington. Oh, 100% Trump is 100% with Bolsonaro. He supports all of his uh, agenda. Uh, short of his uh, racism and misogyny, at least then verbally. So I think his advisors, as of uh, this week, have been telling him to tone it down in order to uh, attract the uh, international audience out there. And I think Washington is very much in favor of his support with Trump against Venezuela and Cuba and uh, supports Trump's bellicose foreign policy. But he's not playing a big role, and there's one major divergence between Trump and Bolsonaro. And Bolsonaro needs to maintain and improve trade relations with China because China takes about 40% of all of uh, Brazil's agro-exports and there's no way in the world the agri- agricultural elite's going to allow Bolsonaro to join Trump's war, trade war with China. So there's very important division here between the economic elite in Brazil, which depends on China, and whatever pressure Trump tries to apply to joining his trade war with China. Just how serious is this for Venezuela? It's not clear that Bolsonaro is going to provide any material support. That is, if the U.S. organizes an invasion of Venezuela, it will have to be with Colombia and a token representation from Brazil. So I think what Bolsonaro will do is perhaps support economic sanctions, financial sanctions, certainly will play up the uh, immigration issue because of the uh, population that is leaving Venezuela for Brazil. 
And so I think there is a certain hostility along the uh, borders between Venezuela and Brazil. But I don't think Bolsonaro has his plate full in trying to organize his policies in Brazil, and I don't think he will be able to play any decisive active role. He could play a follower role in terms of putting pressure on Venezuela and joining Trump in that sense. But I don't think he's in a position right now to uh, launch any military adventures. If that comes with U.S. leadership and Colombian troops, he may send a contingent in there to intervene in Venezuela. But as of now, he will maintain his position as a hostile diplomatically, politically, and socially, but not directly involved in uh, any military coup. Finally, James, the relationship at the moment between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, it's over the death or the alleged... Well, it's very clear today's news. Trump uh, is going to whitewash the uh, terrorist monarchy. He's not going to uh, raise the question of the uh, dismemberment of uh, Kasaji. He's going to uh, cover up. He claims today that it was a rogue group that came into the council, had dinner with the uh, council officials, had a uh, Saudi airplanes that took them back with the uh, cadaver that uh, obviously is not going to appear in in, uh, any council uh, business. So Trump is convinced that he can uh, whitewash the uh, murderers, the monarch murderers. But this is a problem because Kosoji was working with the U.S. uh, government, perhaps the CIA, he was well-connected in Washington, and there, there will be a fight here between uh, Trump and Congress, including many Republicans who don't like covering up a murderer who's been a collaborator of the U.S. for many years. So I, I think uh, Trump is going to have to do some political acrobatics here, how he can try to sell the notion that uh, the murder took place by some rogue individuals who snuck into the council and carried on this operation, transferring whoever they had in their body bags into uh, Riyadh without having anything to do with the uh, murderous prince who was involved in planning and organizing this assassination. You've been listening to Professor Emeritus James Petrus. And he's speaking to me this morning from New York. And his friend who passed away was Professor Morris Morley, who was at Macquarie University in New South Wales. And that happened a month or so ago. James wasn't able to come for the funeral, but he did write a large letter to the family of his friend. Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birurungma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. 
I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. The annual run for Palestine will be held on Sunday, the 18th of November at the TAN, an initiative of Australians for Palestine. One of the organisers is Mohammed Offman, and he's with me by phone to talk about the day's events and how the children of Palestine benefit. So, Mohammed, the, the fun run, which is run now through a number of cities in Australia, focuses on the children of Palestine, but your main focus is the children of Gaza. Can you talk about the, the ways that these, this fund run, the money that raised, helps the children in Gaza? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, as you said, the fund run this year is happening across a few different cities. There's uh, uh, the run in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Sydney and Canberra. And each event has an organisation that they raise money for. And these organisations work in the, uh, in, the, in the children's space in Palestine, working to help disadvantaged children and, and, and so forth. Uh, in Victoria, in the Melbourne event, the organization being uh, raised money for is Olive Kids. And Olive Kids is uh, an organization that, a uh, completely volunteer-run organization that seeks to improve the lives of Palestinian children. Uh, and Olive Kids runs a variety of programs, the main one being an often sponsorship program with partner orphanage in Gaza, where currently uh, almost 300 children are being sponsored by people here in Australia. Uh, and Kids also runs a fundraising campaign to meet critical needs in, in Gaza. Recently, Kids helped the orphanage uh, with a nutrition education campaign as well as setting up a solar energy project to, to help them with the critical power shortages in Gaza. Uh, and Kids has also recently helped the partner orphanage in Gaza with uh, constructing a new building to expand their, their orphanage. That's involved money raised of almost $350,000, and that construction on that has actually already started. So Olive Kids is just one of the examples of the organizations that the Fund Run is is raising money for. Other organizations, uh, such as the the Palestine Children's Fund. And when you talk about an orphanage in Gaza, I'd imagine there's more than one, and the sad thing is that there's even more need for orphanages in Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. The, the situation in Gaza is quite bleak. You know, there's been UN reports that have said that you know Gaza will be unlivable by by 2020. The reports that we get from Gaza on the ground, is, especially recently, is that the situation has become very bleak. Uh, poverty and financial distress is becoming very extreme recently. Uh, a lot of this is actually flow-on effects from President Trump's decision to cut funding to UNRWA, which actually has a lot of trickle-down effects on the people there. They're finding that you know a lot of the, the the money and support that used to sort of flow into Gaza is now stopping, and people are finding that they're really struggling to to make ends meet and put food on the table. And the sad thing is that with these orphanages, the children aren't necessarily don't have a, a parent or parents, but the, the the situation in the home is so dire that the families need support to keep all their children going in effect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, a lot of the times when a child is un- unfortunately orphaned in, 
in Gaza that uh, they, they do end up being cared for by extended family, but due to the, the, the situation and the, the financial distress there, a lot of these families are finding that they, they're not able to support you know, their, their family and as well as these children and their registering for help through organizations such as uh, the partner orphanage, the AMAL that we work with, and, and, and the many other orphanages or organizations working in this space. You know, just recently we uh, were told by our partner orphanage, just one of the orphanages there, that they had uh, 7,000 requests for assistance from families um, struggling to make to make ends meet. And I'd imagine it's very basic, the, the, the support that you can give. How do you get the money there? Well, we... we we work with registered uh, and approved and vetted organisations in Gaza. You know, the partner orphanage that we work with has been has a partnership with the UN since the 50s. So we work with credible organisations and we send regular bank transfers to get the money there. And also building materials, that would be a problem too because of the, the, the way that Israel barricades virtually Gaza from yeah. getting supplies in. Yeah, that's right. It is extremely difficult to get permits and building materials and due to the Israeli blockade, it's extremely difficult. But a lot of organizations find that they, you know, even if they wanted to, they simply couldn't go through with the project. The, the project that we that all the kids has helped the orphanage to, to build that building was extremely difficult to get all the necessary sort of red tape covered to get it going. Talk about the day. How does it start and how does it end? Well, the run for Palestine is is really great. It's probably one of the landmark events on, in the Palestinian community uh, here in Australia. But it's open to everyone, and it's a great day out for you know if, if you want to run or if you don't. It's a great day out either way. In Melbourne, the event is held at the Tan, and you can choose to run one lap or two, or go for a walk around the Tan. And after the run, there will be a kind of like a family day with some rides and, and a petting zoo and some food stalls and a little bit of music. It's always a great day out. Is it necessary to book ahead or can you can you enrol on the day? So if you'd like to participate in the run or the walk, it, you, you should register. The registrations for Australia-wide are through the website uh, runforpalestine.com.au and you just follow the prompt to your city. And, yeah, as I said before, the, the this year will be the biggest run for Palestine nationally. There's, it's Sunday, November 18th, and there's events in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Sydney, and Canberra. If you're also interested, you know, somebody can actually uh, register for the Melbourne event and create a – you'll get a fundraising page through a platform called Everyday Heroes, and you can use that to spread the word about who you're raising money for and spread the word to your friends and family and and get them to either donate or come along with you to the run and participate. And part of the deal is you get a, a human rights T-shirt? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've got our uh, really popular Run for Palestinian Human Rights T-shirt, which we've been using for a number of years now, and that is included in the, in the price, yes. And some people have been going for years, don't need a T-shirt, they just keep on wearing the ones they had before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Give that webpage again. So it's www.runforpalestine.com.au. Thanks, Mohammed. Thank you, Jen. And that was Mohammed Othman from Olive Kids. You heard just about the work that they do and why 
you have fund runs to raise funds for groups like Olive Kids and that I'll give it again. It's runforpalestine.com.au and it's Sunday the 18th of November. I think it starts 10 or 11 o'clock, but do have a look on the, the webpage. It will tell you exactly what is happening. On 20th of October, come enjoy and experience traditional barapen, underground cooking from West Papua. Fundraising for Black Orchid Stream Band with music, food and movie. Hell in Brunswick East, cooking will start at 5 p.m. Pre-booking ticket only. 20 for adults, 14 for children, kids under 5 is free. Find the event on Black Hockey Stream Band Facebook page. Book through Try Booking. See you there at 20 of October. Black Hockey Stream Band, proud 3CR supporter. The Australian Rare Earth producer Linus Corporation established against wide spread opposition and major protests, a rare earth processing operation in the Malaysian province of Kuantan. The new government of Dr Mohamed Mahathir is reported to have ordered a three-month review of the refinery. I'm speaking with environmental consultant Lee Tan. Lee, this refinery is situated in your hometown. Has it been confirmed that the review will take place? In the past, he hasn't said much about it, has he, or hasn't he? Well, he hasn't been opposing to it, mainly because I think his son, one of his son, has the contract to supply petrochemicals to the company. But this time, he's reviewing it because one of the platforms that this new government's um, one government was uh, from uh, promising to have sustainable development and a cleaner Malaysia, you know, promising to look after the environment better. Many people had voted the government in also because of pollution issues and hazards from industries and so on and so forth. And of course, we know the Linus campaign has uh, actually sparked uh, the biggest ever environmental campaign in Malaysia with millions of people signing petition and, and uh, putting in submissions and everything. And that's unprecedented in Malaysia. So, I mean, that's sending a very clear signal to the political parties that has now ruled the country. What are the terms of reference for this review? It is an executive review. There's no, we haven't seen any terms of reference, but according to a media statement from Fuzia Saleh, the MP who is now a deputy minister in the prime minister office, who hates up the campaign, she has been a very strong advocate on Linus previously. She says that it is an executive review that looks into all aspects of uh, approval and licensing processes to make sure that it's consistent with law in Malaysia and also looking at waste management issue and pollution issue uh, and social and environmental impact, which have been largely 
neglected or, you know, basically not taken into consideration in the past when that project was given a go-ahead and license issued subsequently. So these are the issues that the people who have been opposed to it want looked at? Yeah, absolutely, because um, as we might remember, the construction for the plant has started before people knew about it. And by the time it was reported in the New York Times magazine, it has been 60% completed. And then it went ahead without any, you know, stop, construction delay or anything like that. So there was no government intervention apart from some kind of review that doesn't mean much to the people. So while this review is going on, the plant keeps operating. Is that what it means? Yes, yes. Because they've got the license to operate, until the government find any breach of licensing condition, they cannot actually stop the operation legally. Linus's chief executive, Amanda Lassaz, in a letter to the government and the people of Malaysia, appealed for a fair go. That's what I read. It wanted fair, just, objective and scientific. Wasn't that just what the people wanted? Yes, um, precisely. Yeah, I mean, the spin from the company has always been very strong. Uh, we got to remember that Amanda is paid over a million dollars a year in salary. Even though the company's cash flow situation ain't that glossy, and her entire package is over three million dollars in, I mean, Australian dollars. That's a lot of money. And, you know, of course she will spin, but on the ground, I mean, you know, I've read in one of, one of the articles about her, which quoted her as saying that when they were in very serious financial trouble, she had people from the um, administrative staff to actually work in the operating area. Uh, in the factory or in the plant floor. I mean, that's totally illegal in Australia. And yet, you know, she had the guts to actually do it in Malaysia. And even when public to boast about how efficient or how capable she had been in managing that plant. I mean, that's outrageous. So, you know, there's a lot of spin, but still, you know, the radioactive waste. A lot of it now, we're talking about every year the company producing 5.6 tons of uranium and 106 tons of thorium, both of which are radioactive and, you know, needs to be managed properly. These are amongst the waste that contain huge amount of metals and, and toxic chemicals. They're proposing to mix that with all of the other stream of waste to make a fertilizer to be sold. I mean, that's outrageous. In Australia, that's not possible. That kind of radioactive and con- uh, industrial contaminated waste has to be managed properly and isolated from populated area. And yet this company has just dumped them in a, in a pond which they've constructed lie only with HDPE plastic that's less than one millimetre thick. In Europe, that their municipal rubbish has thicker plastic than that. So that's showing you how much those kind of words from the company mean in practice. And if that Australian company had set up the same plant here, none of that would have been allowed of that they're course. getting away with in Malaysia. Exactly, because um, the EPA here monitors regularly. In Malaysia, this kind of company that produced 
the complex radioactive waste, they don't have the capacity to manage it. I mean, remember that once the director general of the nuclear regulator in Malaysia is saying that Linus waste is so safe, it can be scattered everywhere. If you have a head of a regulator saying that, it's telling you a lot about their understanding of the hazards and the toxicity of what they're dealing with. And they haven't got a clue. The statement they made is so totally broad and irresponsible. And what actually are they making or producing? Linus is producing rare earth minerals. And as we know, in a lot of advanced modern technology, from green to to weapon technology to everyday items like your iPhone, your laptop and, and touchscreen products, they all need a dash of different types of rare earth. This group of mineral is it's, uh, considered as strategic metals because um, they have wide range of industrial application. So they have huge commercial value. But, you know, the, the processing of it, unfortunately, is hazardous and it leaves behind huge amount of waste that are contaminated, you know, as I say earlier, radioactive materials, uh, heavy metals and chemicals. What other countries have refineries like this? Okay, in China, China has been, um, because of the hazard, Australia, US and many Western countries have phased them out in their own country as they clean up their own environmental mess. They push it to China. A lot of investment happened in China from about 80s onwards particularly from the USA, and that has created a monopoly or dominance in China where at one point they're producing up to about 96, 97% of the world supply. Because of that, you know, China suffering a disaster from that industry with uh, very chronic diseases from arsenic and fluoride poisoning and also radioactive contamination that has rendered much of his uh, in, um, farmland in Inner Mongolia, where rare earth is produced mostly, totally unusable. The villages that has been termed by the media as cancer village. And because of that, in 2010, around that time, China started to clamp down on pollution issues and started to impose new, stricter, environmental safeguards, you know, having higher standards, regulating rare earth particularly, and also the radioactivity coming out from the rare earth processing. And because of that, you know, the the companies now looked uh, at that time, from then on, looked at other countries that can accept that kind of hazards. And Malaysia, given, you know, its corrupt government at that time, was a very convenient target And besides, Malaysia also had a previous toxic legacy from uh, Japan's Mitsubishi that set up a smaller rare earth processing plant in another town that has actually caused very serious health problems and environmental issues. And it is still being cleaned up today by Mitsubishi. You know, that's how basically Linus landed in Malaysia. Um, And the geopolitics of um, rare earth it's uh, very clear, you know, and it's seldom being accepted 
in advanced industrialized country. In Australia, there are a few companies that are trying to set up now with tighter environmental control and waste management, but it is taking a long time as we can expect because every stage, every step require clearance from the different licensing authorities, but this kind of thing doesn't happen in Malaysia because they just don't have the capacity to do that. Do the environmental groups in Malaysia have an input to this review? Yes, in that sense. Many of the MPs who are now heading it have links with the environmental groups. We are all having different inputs into it through different channels. What's the best outcome that you could see from such a review? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it is unreasonable to shut liners down without any reason. We all know that. But what we need to do is to see if um, the whole licensing process has been tainted with any bribery or corruption. That would be a very serious issue, both for Malaysia and also for Australia, because company corrupt, you know, engage in corrupt activities overseas is still punishable by law here in Australia. So that will be one aspect to look at. Another aspect is the environmental and health concern to review once again Linus fraud, waste management plan and substandard pollution control. I think we're very confident that technically we have evidence um, the, the next issue is whether Malaysian law is strong enough to capture those uh, defects. You know, I personally, I think Malaysia will have to tighten its law as well. The current set of law is not strong enough to manage this kind of complex pollution issue. Are you encouraged that now the corrupt government is gone, that those things will happen? I guess, yes. We are all very encouraged. Malaysian and Malaysian um, diasporas are very happy to see that not only just that the corrupt government is uh, voted out, was voted out, but that the party that has dominated Malaysian politics for over 61 years has been voted out first time in history. And that's a historical moment. I guess the challenge now is to make sure this government does not slip back, you know, to the kind of uh, corrupt culture that's been entrenched in, in Malaysia is a big challenge because um, the whole entire system has been so corrupt for so long, it takes a long time to actually clean it up. And it also takes a lot of good skill, you know, to actually facilitate good governance in the country. And, and also to deal with the culture where, you know, people are used to corruption and they want some people want quick money as well. Well, meanwhile, the former Prime Minister, Najib Rajak, has faced court. There's yes. a lot of charges against him now, aren't there? No, I think those charges are not even finalised yet. There's still more coming. There's been a few very cold-blooded murders, which may be linked to the one-MDB scandal or Najib himself. Um, all of that still getting investigated uh, and it will take time and just yesterday his wife Rosma Manso who has been very well known for her bending habits and love for luxurious goods has just been charged as well I think there were 17 different charges against her of course you know she was bailed for millions of dollars so yeah it's a long ongoing saga that will take a long time to actually get through. 
Just remind the listeners, Lee, of the 1MDB. Okay, 1MDB is a state investment fund set up by the former Prime Minister Najib Razak. It was meant to help Malaysia to invest for its future using funds from different sources, from petroleum particularly, revenue. But then it has been squandered. It ended up in huge, massive deficits. So Malaysia, some people in Malaysia, the Auditor General and all that, start to investigate and found that there's been very serious corruption. Money's gone missing and so forth. And then eventually, but because it was ruled by Najib Razak before, those information didn't get taken seriously by various authorities. Because, you know, he would sack people and put in people who would not charge him and so on and so forth. And that's where some of the mysterious deaths also happened. Yeah, the founder of M-Bank, which is uh, one of the major uh, offshore arms of ANZ Bank, was murdered as well in broad daylight because he knew too much and started to report what he knew about some corrupt dealings with the bank. Kevin Morayas, the prosecutor, uh, chief public prosecutor, you know, disappeared a day before he handed the charge sheet to the Prime Minister and then was found a week later in a drum, tortured and um, obviously, you know, sealed in cement and everything. Um, That's really quite uh, astounding, you know, for a country like Malaysia to have that kind of gangster-like or mafia-like operations happening as well. But there's also Miranda Kerr, the model, and then there's the son of PM or the former PM Turnbull, Alex Turnbull, and then there's Goldman Sachs when Turnbull, the father, was working there. Yeah, well, um, a lot, according to Alex, he whistled blue on this very vicious um, transaction to senior management, but uh, he felt that he was sidelined because of that, uh, yeah, which eventually, you know, caused his resignation from the company. Um, yes, of course, Goldman Sachs is very much implicated. There's a new book called Billion Dollar Wealth um, that was, has been written by a couple of uh, Wall Street journalists. It's all about that and how Goldman Sachs and various people have been involved in this scandal. So it's a very international financial scandal involving different financial institutions, real estate agents and, and lawyers and, and accountants and so on and so forth. Been investigated in about six, seven different countries, but Australia has not actually taken part, uh, taking part, uh, well, play its role in investigating this scandal uh, and and we're very sure that Australia too is involved you know primarily through ANZ's ownership of MBank and also the strong links between Australia and, and Malaysia where a lot of uh, investment are coming through Australia you know some of which are from corrupt means uh, through corrupt means what was the reaction of the Australian government when that review was announced? Yeah, when it was announced, surprisingly, the Australian High Commissioner in Kuala Lumpur came out publicly, you know, warning that Malaysia shouldn't uh, go ahead. If the Linus plant is shut down, it will affect Australian investment in Malaysia 
and that's really interesting because usually diplomats don't intervene in this kind of private affairs. It's not about human rights violation or anything like that. It is about a company that has a, a questionable reputation to start with. I'm sure the High Commissioner himself knew about the outrage and the strong reaction from Malaysian. Yeah, to come out to say that is totally inappropriate and uncalled for. But interestingly, the Prime, Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad actually went on to the media to say that, well, he's not aware of any such move by any Australian investor. Nobody has actually came to his office, yeah, expressing concern over the review. And also, the High Commissioner had no understanding that the balance of trade between Australia and, New- and, and Malaysia is actually in favour of Australia. It is more that the Malaysians are actually unhappy because uh, an Australian corporations has gone to Malaysia to pollute its environment when they have invested so much and when they are doing trade with Australia that benefit Australia. But they believe that the the man who's behind it all, Joe Lowe, he's untouchable at the moment, isn't he? Well, he's uh, obviously a very shrewd operator, otherwise he wouldn't have cooked up such a horrible scheme. Yeah, he knew that, I mean, he knew that he would be in trouble one day, so I think he had his track covered to a certain extent. I think eventually he would be found, but right now he's hiding somewhere, you know, God knows through whatever means. Um, Obviously, he's well connected in many different circles, and it's not difficult for him to disguise his identity or get a different passport or something like that for the money that he's uh, stolen on behalf of Najib and Rosma. And there's also another connection with Malaysia with the imprisonment in Villawood of yes, a, a, former police, a, a former police officer. Yes, I think he was a bodyguard or something, somebody very senior in the Prime Minister's office. He was found guilty of um, murdering a Mongolian model come translation, believed to be uh, one of the mistresses of uh, Najib Razak, the former Prime Minister. And they were embroiled in a, in a submarine purchase purchasing scandal where the French submarine company has paid bribe for Malaysia to buy two very expensive submarines that hasn't been used at all. It's still sitting somewhere in Malaysian water. According to reports, the Mongolian model Artantuya Sharibu was pregnant uh, with somebody's baby. Some believe that it's the Prime Minister's, we don't know, because the body was blown up by a military-grade explosive that's only available to people with strong connection with the military in Malaysia. And she tried to get her promised commission for the deal. So she was kidnapped and then subsequently shot and and, uh, blew up. Her remains were found in some forest near Kuala Lumpur. So that was very brutal ending also for somebody who knew too much and who basically who got into a relationship with the wrong person. And her father has actually just come from mm-hmm. Mongolia to Malaysia. Yeah. yeah, both her father and also the Mongolian president has appealed to the new government to invest, to reopen the case 
And uh, Bursa Australia, in which I'm involved, has also asked the government of Australia to extradite the fugitive who is now in Villawood Detention Centre so that he can actually give evidence. He had stated that he's prepared to give evidence, to give more information on the case. Basically, he was just a hired killer. He had no motive in um, killing Atantuya. You could imagine he'd need some protection if he's going to go and do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that he hasn't been hung in Malaysia, convicted murderers, had always been hung. Uh, in this case, you know, he was able to come, like, leave the country and everything and, and sought asylum. In uh, Australia, tells a lot about, you know, the kind of connection and money that his, he and his family might have got from uh, the, the very horrific murder. You're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time and my name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with environmental consultant Lee Tan. Moving south to Timor-Leste where the government has just paid $480 million for a 30% share in the Greater Sunrise Consortium held by US company ConocoPhillips. Where did the money come from? It came from the Sovereign Fund, set up, or the Petroleum Fund, they call it, set up to manage the revenue from the Timo Gap oil and gas uh, industry. Um, yeah, as we know, you know, there's, there's always been a dispute between Australia and Timo Leste uh, over the Timo Gap oil and gas resources. So, and some of the resources have been exploited and there's been due from before where revenue, uh, a certain percentage of revenue goes to Timor and that petrol fund, petroleum funds actually hold this kind of revenue. And it is meant to be there to help Timor to develop and also uh, to invest for the future. A lot of people are unhappy about it? Some people are not happy about it. I think ordinary Timorese are mostly unhappy about it because they have seen much of the petroleum fund being used not wisely, hasn't been uh, invested adequately in education, in health, infrastructure development or support for the rural agriculture sector and or, you know, public transport or anything like that in for or jobs creation for the urban settlers and community so and they also worry that it's kind of a sunset industry the way for the future should be sustainable development and the previous prime minister of Timor Araujo has actually signed on to the UN sustainable development goals and yet you know this fund is actually so much of the fund about half of it is going to be spent acquiring another oil and gas operations that's actually going to increase the country's emission, like greenhouse gas emission. So that's kind of very inconsistent with what previous leaders have committed to doing. And the present leaders are determined to have the processing in Timor. Yes, and that's another risk undertaken for such a huge amount of money because, you know, like the liner situation, Timor-Leste's capacity to manage pollution and hazards from the oil and gas chemical industry is 
almost non-existent. I've, I've done some training with the district environmental officer, and you know, technically, they still need a lot of capacity building before they are able to manage complex pollution issue. As we know, oil and gas industry uses huge amount of complex chemicals um, and so on and so forth and leaves behind huge amount of very hazardous pollution like what we've seen in Nigeria. Many other developing countries where foreign companies came just like liners, set up plants and then leave behind very severe pollution because the law allowed them to do that or there's no strong law to stop them from doing that. And where's the expertise to come from to continue to run this business? Precisely, they'll have to depend on expatriates uh, from Australia and elsewhere. That is very sad because this petroleum fund, which should go in, uh, to support the people of Timor-Leste, who ended up you know, having to pay executives and technical people who are from overseas leaving very little um, benefit behind and also whether or not this venture is actually going to get the investment back plus profit is questionable as the world is moving towards more renewable energy, uh, electric cars, well, of course, that will take decades, but then, you know, there's huge amount of oil reserves everywhere now. It is uh, quite a big risk for the Timor-Leste government to take. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've had the whistleblower witness, Kay, and mm-hmm. Australian lawyer, Bernard Collery, on charges yes. to yes. do with that Timor oil. Yes, and that's, again, you know, showing bad faith and, and um, governance. Bernard Collery was merely doing his job. He felt that, you know, what the Australian government was doing before was wrong, and he reported it. He didn't go to the media directly. He actually reported it as he was required to do, and yet now he's being persecuted or prosecuted for something which he did out of his duty of care as an Australian public servant. Timorese and also many Australian and um, supporters from overseas have expressed their outrage at this. But then, you know, we also have a very far-right government that is ruthless in this case. And the project on the north coast of... Timor-Leste at Baokao, the cement yeah, projects. What's yeah. happening there? Well, I heard that it has been um, not cancelled, but it's definitely been delayed. The last I had contact with Timor-Leste, they say that part of the contract, the Timorese government has to come out with certain like $100 million or something as part of its contribution to the project. And the government disagreed to do that. But I also heard recently that it is because of environmental licensing issue that the project wasn't given the go-ahead. And that's thanks to Dimitrio Cavallo, who used to head up Harborous Foundation, whom I worked with for many years, actually expressed to him many times the risk of uh, using the Baokao limestone formation for cement. I hope that it is because he's taken warnings from us, from myself and other people on board that he has done something through his new role in the, new, in the government in Timor-Leste as the Secretary for Environment. And what are the risks? Environment and social. The environmental risk is, of course, you know, that area 
being limestone, has very complex hydrological system. And Baokao has abundant of water through springs. And these springs are interconnected. And limestone or karst formations quite complex and they're difficult to study to determine the hydrology to make sure that cutting off certain parts of it is not going to divert the the water flow into another area and cutting off the spring for those people who are needing it. So the water budget is needed and is very complex to establish uh, and also cast ecology is very unique and it's actually support the flora and fauna that are not found in any other landscape. And none of that's been studied. There's no baseline. Yeah, although there's some initial appraiser that has indicated significance of species and so on and so forth in that area. Also, from a cultural and spiritual point of view, that area to different community has significance. Yet, you know, none of that's been taken consideration. If the area has to be it's to be exploited for cement. It means that, you know, a huge chunk of that landscape will be cut away, leaving a huge hole. I think it was one kilometer deep or something, and it's very wide, you know, like a massive swimming pool. And that, that in, in itself is also very dangerous. So the, and the environmental impact assessment, I've never seen the full report. I've only seen the terms of reference. Terms of reference is good, but then I've never seen the report, so I've never quite known, you know, what they found. Hopefully that's actually revealing a lot of issues, which has helped to make this decision to hold that project. What about dust from a project like this? Absolutely, there's dust, there's uh, all kinds of uh, issues in terms of transporting cement to the port, the bayside pollution. The plan was for the company to build its own port. That has a lot of implication. I mean, you know, apart from exporting cement, what else are they exporting from it? And again, you know, the lack of capacity of a small country like Timor-Leste to actually manage it is a, is a big issue as well. It is, to me, another project that's looking big, but one would question what kind of benefit will it bring to an impoverished country like Timor-Leste. You know, surely the money from the petroleum fund, the 100 million or whatever, could have been spent in other ways to support rural farmers to process their produce to try and sell it internally and also to export and to have a better control of their coffee export so that the middlemen are not getting so much profit that but that the local farmers are. So there are lots of things that can be done with the petroleum fund and spending it on projects owned by foreigners, run by and operated by foreigners will only mostly profit foreigners and not Timolesti. So in that sense, it is a good sign to see that that cement project has been postponed or halt or whatever, put to a stop anyway at this stage. And that's consultant, environmental consultant Lee Tan. And we have to wait three months for their review into Kalina's project in Kwantan in Malaysia. Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. 
Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birrarungma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. The Pogra mine in Papua New Guinea has produced billions of dollars of gold in the past 20 years. It is operated by Barrett Gold, a Canadian company, the world's largest gold producer. But for years the local people have protested against human rights abuses and the destruction of their environment and some are asking the government to block the attempts to extend the mining licence which expires next year. I'm speaking with Catherine Cummins, who is a research coordinator and Asia-Pacific program coordinator with Mining Watch Canada. First, Catherine, can you describe the area in which the vast mine is now situated? In the Porgra Valley, which is an Enga province in Papua New Guinea, and it's in the highlands. And so in order to get there, you fly from Port Moresby to Hagen, Mount Hagen, and then there's a sort of a six-hour trip winding through the mountains, and the road to the mine literally ends at the mine. There's nothing after that, so it's very remote. What about the local communities that were there before the mine was started? The community there are indigenous people called Ipili. Before the mine was started, this was such a remote area that the first white people that were seen in that valley were actually in the 1950s. So, and at that time, it was an almost entirely a, a barter economy or, a, you know, non-cash economy. The mine started in 1990, and, you know, this was just something that was completely, it was impossible for people to anticipate what this was actually going to mean to their economy. They did have some gold panning as well, so more recently, so in the years before the mine started, there's so much gold in the mountains there that the streams and um, rivers around that area were rich enough in gold that people could do a little bit of gold panning, and other than that, they were, it, was far, it was a barter economy. I'd imagine there wasn't a lot of consultation with the local people before this mine started? Well, no, there really wasn't. I mean, people were very remote. The road was put in for the mine, so before that, you know, it was very difficult to even reach this area. No, it was a, it was a peaceful place. I should say it was a peaceful place by northern, you know, Papua New Guinea standards, you know, Obviously, mountain provinces, Anga in particular, always had a tradition of tribal warfare. Um, so, you know, that was pretty normal part of their culture to every now and then have disputes that would be would be fought out in, in tribal warfare. But, I mean, uh, in terms of the kinds of things we're seeing now, in terms of the conflict with the mine, that was unheard of. Well, I'd imagine their lives were turned completely upside down. Totally, 100%. It, it's just unrecognizable. And the place itself is unrecognizable. It, it, it's such an unusual mine. It's the worst mine I have ever witnessed. And people who go up there just come away saying it's, 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 it's like going to hell. This mine, even though it's the biggest gold mining company in the world, Barrett Gold, this mine operates outside of every aspect of what you would call best practice for mining. So, for example, all of the mine waste, all of the tailings, they just get dumped directly into the, the local environment. So they get dumped into a local river. 
and basically are carried downstream. It's about 800 kilometers um, of waterways between the mine and the ocean, and the, all this waste just gets flushed down the rivers. There's no containment of waste at all. So that's the tailings, and then the waste rock dumps are engineered, and this is the mine is quite proud to say that they're engineered to move like glaciers, and they will continue to empty themselves into the nearby valleys around the mine, possibly for hundreds of years. So all of the waterways and all of the sort of sharp, you know, steep valleys around the mine are filled with mine waste. And because of this, the, the mine waste actually caves off the sharp slopes of the of the mountains on both sides, and so you get these these landslides that also end up, you know, and so the, the the waste flows are actually becoming wider over time, and the actual land that people can live on is becoming smaller and smaller, and people are having to inch their way up these steep slopes, as well as finding themselves on what they call islands, which are little islands that are higher than the waste, and the waste flows on either side. So all the agricultural land has been destroyed. Um, it's very difficult. They're already very high in the highlands, and so they're on the edge of where you know certain crops can actually even be cultivated. And and as they go up, as they go more steeply up these slopes, um, that becomes impossible. So they've lost their largely lost their subsistence livelihood through the mine. And in addition, it's very treacherous now to move around. As people have to move from one place to another, they, ha they literally have to cross these waste flows. And at times, at certain times of the year, these waste flows become like quicksand. So people, and children in particular, just drown and get carried away. Um, one whole school actually caved off and fell into the waste flows and was carried down downhill. There were no children in the school at the time, unfortunately. But it's very, very dangerous. And then there's the toxicity of the waste. And the fact that people have lost their livelihood and their ability to feed themselves, so what they're now doing is they're actually going into the waste flows and they're panning for gold directly in the tailings flows that are you know being piped out and in the waste dumps because there's still enough residual gold there that they can pan, but it's extremely hazardous both in terms of just the, the natural hazards of this waste, which is sometimes like quicksand and can just drag them down, but also because of the chemicals in the waste and then Thirdly, it's extremely hazardous because the minute they enter these waste flows, even though this is the only way they can move around, they have to go through the waste flows to get from one place to another, when they do, they are officially trespassing. And at that point, the security of the mine, which is in both private security and Papua New Guinea police, these are the most brutal police forces in Papua New Guinea called the mobile units, they are guarding the mine collectively, jointly, private and public security forces, and they then prey on the people who enter the waste flows. And so women have been raped and gang raped in great numbers, and men are being shot at and beaten up. So it's, it's really a horrible place. What happens when they have the rainy season there? I'd imagine that the, the waste would be just astronomical. It's, it's, it's um, what they call cloud forest. So there's, there tends to be a bit of rain every day. It's quite a wet place, but there are definitely drier times and wetter times. And during the dry times, it's really awful because the only way people can now have drinking water is that mine has handed out these plastic barrels that they can collect water in. Although people keep saying that there's this reddish red residue that sort of piles up in the bottom, so they're really worried that the water they're drinking is not very healthy. But in the dry season, they actually have to climb into the mountains and go quite long distances to get water. 
but also in the rainy season, as I said, the waste becomes even more treacherous because it, it actually tends to sort of then act as, as a, almost like a quicksand and people can just be sucked down into it. Has the area of this mine increased over the years so that more people have been displaced? Absolutely. The mine has you know, gotten larger and larger over all these years. It's a very, very large open pit, and now they have also underground workings. And part of the reason that they have gone underground is because, you know, they would have literally had to displace almost everyone again if they had just kept increasing the pit. They move people on what they call a need-to-move basis. Whenever an area becomes what they call geotechnically unstable, and that means that the waste is about to cave off another piece of land where people are living, then they will move just those people that they have to move, or they will um, move people if they need to expand the mine. But other than that, everyone is just living right around the pit and right around the waste flows. And as I said, it's becoming more and more difficult for people to find places to live, so they're all squeezed in together in ways that is totally different than how they used to live. But of course, there's also people from other areas that will move to that area, the way the landowner um, culture is, is no one can just move on to anyone else's land without the permission of the landowners. But if it's family members, if it's people from other, you know, nearby areas that have a familial link to people, to landowners who are living around the mine, then they will grant permission and people will come in and also go into the waste flows and try to pan for gold. So it's, it's two problems. It's one problem that the amount of land left just for living on and for agriculture is, is, is constantly being eroded away and people are moving in to try and make a livelihood from the waste flows which are still containing gold. I'd imagine there must be fairly extensive health problems for the people, especially skin irritations and things like that. Are there health clinics? Has the company set up any health clinics for the people? What's really important to understand um, for your your listeners is that there was an agreement before the mine was set up and it was in 1989 an agreement was signed and and it's really important to know that in August of next year that agreement comes to an end and the mine is right now very actively trying to pursue with the government of Papua New Guinea and with the local landowners the conditions for, for getting a renewal of that agreement so that they can mine for another 25 years the, in the original agreement, there were all kinds of promises made with regard to what both how severe the impacts would be, but also what the benefits would be of having a mine. And none of this has worked out. The impacts are far more severe than anyone could even envision or imagine at the time. And the benefits that were promised are, are have just never been honored by the company. So one of those benefits was, in fact, to put in a hospital and to keep that hospital functioning. And that hospital exists. There is a, a, a structure there, but it hasn't been open for the last three years. And so people who have very severe impacts from the mine also have no place to go in terms of a, you know, a functioning hospital. And the impacts are really large. I mean, people are being shot at, women are being raped and gang raped, and so you know they do need a, a proper a hospital to go to, but the hospital has been defunct for the last three years. There were commitments made that the entire community would be would be developed, that there would be a town developed with, with proper infrastructure, and instead what the mine did was resort to flying people in and out. So it's a fly-in, fly-out mine now, 
and so those commitments were also never lived up to. What happens to the men or people who are shot and the, the women who are gang raped if there's no health facilities? Where do they go? They're having to go to small clinics. Um, so there are small government clinics there, but those are not very well set up for the kinds of injuries that you're seeing. These injuries are both from people going into the waste itself, from people having clashes with the security guards, but also um, being overrun by heavy equipment. For example, last year there was a 17 or well, actually it was probably a 15-year-old boy who was in the waste flows, panning for gold as usual, and he was run over by one of the large dump trucks and was very severely injured. Well, there was no place to take him that could have dealt with his injuries, and he, he died. In fact, even the autopsy, they had to bring the body to Mount Hagen, um, you know, across that, that six-hour road through the mountains just to have an autopsy done. It, it, there's just nothing there, uh, you know, that, that can deal with the kinds of injuries that people are sustaining around that mine. Would you say that there's collusion between the PNG government or the local government in that area with the mining company to make sure that the people stay compliant? Well, the collusion that is most pernicious is the collusion between the mine and the government with respect to the security forces around the mine. I mean, the mine is heavily militarized, and there's a memorandum of understanding between the the company and the Papua New Guinea government that actually allows the government to supply the mine with these mobile units who are have been written up in various human rights reports over the years as being really brutal forces and these people are deployed around the mine to, to, to guard the mine and they have no connection to the, to the local people and they, they are quite brutal. They're being housed by the mine, they're being fed by the mine, they're being clothed by the mine and their salaries are being paid by the mine. So that's a level of blurring of private and public. I mean these are public police but they are you know, essentially being paid by the mine and they're known to be very brutal and of course the allegations that have been brought by women and men around, around the mining including things like houses being burnt down repeatedly in one village by these um, mobile units are not properly investigated because it's, it's the police themselves so there's no place to go to complain about this. What access to the mine and the people in the surrounding areas is there for human rights defenders and other NGOs to talk with the people and see what's happening? So we have been going up there for over 10 years now. In 2005, we received a report that was just remarkable. It was called the Shooting Fields of Porgra Joint Venture. And it was a small group of family members of men who had been shot and killed by the security forces around the mine who came together and found some support from the University of Papua New Guinea to pull together this report, which was just absolutely shocking and, and horrifying. I mean, there was a picture on the front page of a body bag and someone being dragged out of the bush who had been shot by the security forces. So from 2005 on, we, we became aware that something was going on there. In 2006, I was able to get up there, and I've been going back regularly since. I was there again last December. 
But it's so overwhelming. The, the problem is so large, and there are so many people affected that my, when Mining Watch got up there and was able to, to realize just how large this problem was, we knew that we needed help, and we brought in some human rights clinics. So the Harvard Human Rights Clinic, New York University Human Rights Clinic, and Columbia University Human Rights Clinic have all become involved, and they've been going up there and bringing teams of students up there. That's very difficult at times because of the security situations and interviewing the victim. And we have literally hundreds of interviews with these victims. And in, in the mine for years, from between 2008 and 2010, 11, people were coming from, we brought people from Papua New Guinea to Canada to go to the annual general meeting of, of Barrett Gold in Toronto. And they would stand up and literally tell the whole board of directors, the chairman of Barrett Gold, and all of the shareholders that were gathered there, that their security forces were killing the men and raping and gang raping the women. And for years, the company just, you know, said that this was outrageous allegations, this was libelous, this was, you know, fan, you know, fantasized um, imaginations of deranged people. I mean, literally, that kind of language was used. We even brought all of this before a parliamentary committee in Canada before the company finally acknowledged that there was a problem. And they have now briefly put in place a grievance mechanism, and 119 women who've been raped and gang raped received a limited amount of remedy, which is some compensation. But those 119 have now filed a complaint with the UN because the amount they received was really laughable, and they had to, in return for that amount, they had to sign away their legal rights. They cannot sue the company in Papua New Guinea or anywhere in the world. And 11 other women were able to get some representation from an NGO in the States called Earth Rights International, and they got eight times as much in terms of remedy. And then the company, because of the complaints, topped up the original 119, and now they have got one-fourth as much as, as the women who had proper legal representation. So this is an ongoing festering problem. But those 119 and those 11 women are not all the women who've been raped and gang raped. There are many, many more. The company closed down its grievance mechanism after two years, and so there are many more women who have never received any kind of recognition of the harm that they've endured. You are listening to Catherine Cummins, who is the Research Coordinator and Asia-Pacific Program Coordinator with Mining Watch Canada. And the topic is the Pogra Mine in PNG. And it's not only the women who have already endured this, it's the ones in the future that the government has made or the, the company has made no promise or acknowledgement that this must stop. Well... <laughs> You know, the company says that it's, it's telling the security guards not to rape women and, and not to kill men. But, you know, and, and since this has all become so very, very public and the company has actually had to put that grievance mechanism in place, you know, and this is being raised at the U.N. level, the, you know, the Canadian government is fully aware of all of these issues. I have to say it has made a difference. The levels of violence, particularly against women, are not as as bad as they were when we first went up there in 2005. But in a way, that's also very painful because it, it just shows that the company actually could have been doing more to control the behavior of its security forces all along. And, you know, after a long period of denial, and when they couldn't do that anymore, they had to actually, you know, do something about it, it's a little bit better now than it was, but it still hasn't entirely stopped. We're still getting reports. 
as I said, there's a whole lot of women who've still never received any kind of compensation or recognition of the harm. Getting down to the basics, what is the figures that this company has made out of this gigantic mine? Is there a figure? Oh, this is one of the biggest gold mines in the world. They, the, I'm sorry I don't have those numbers in front of me, but there's something like a million dollars a day that they're getting out of the ground there. It's very, it's a very profitable mine. They wouldn't have kept going as long as they have, you know, if, if, if it were not for that. And they're now trying to get a renewal of their lease, and I, this mine could go on for easily for another, another 25 years. There's a lot of gold up there. This is one of Barrett Gold's biggest, biggest money makers. And Barrick Gold is the biggest gold mining company in the world. So this is not a company that, that, that couldn't be doing a better job. And they make all kinds of commitments here in Canada that they're, you know, that they're utilizing best practice and, you know, that they're, that they care about human rights. So it's, it's, you know, the, the discrepancy between what they say and what they do is really huge. And what does the government of PNG make out of this? Well, this is the problem. The Papua New Guinea government is, of course, complicit in, in all of this in the sense that they, you know, are receiving some taxes and some royalties, although, interestingly enough, an organization that, that sort of tries to track payments to governments, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, actually did a report, issued a report, I think it was 2013, and actually showed that the mine had showed, paid no taxes at all in 2013. So they also do get all kinds of tax holidays and breaks from the government. What the government gets is not nearly, you know, what what they should be getting. I mean, this is a non-renewable resource. Once this gold is out of the ground and has left the country, it's, you know, that's it. They will never have these, the benefits from this gold. The environment is being massively, massively impacted. You know, this 800-kilometer-long river is impacted daily by the waste that's being spewed into it. There's the human rights issues of the people there, and and there's real concerns around closure. I mean, how do you even close a mine like this that, that has an 800-kilometer-long footprint? It, it's none of the waste is contained. So the, the harm, the environmental harm, the environmental costs, as well as all the human rights costs, are, are going to be very long, long-lasting. Is this symptomatic of what Barrett Gold does in other countries? Yeah, unfortunately, Barrick has a terrible reputation. And remarkably, I work in Asia-Pacific normally, but I started, we started getting reports, Mine Watch Canada started getting reports, that there was another mine, Barrick Mine, in Tanzania. And those reports were also of extreme excess use of force and abuses by the security people against the local population. And for the last five years, so from 2014 on, every year I've been going back to Tanzania, this is the North Mara mine, and it's been horrific to see the exact same things happening. They've got a memorandum of understanding with the Tanzanian government, Tanzanian police, and private security are jointly operating at that mine, and there's just been hundreds of cases of men being shot at and maimed, and we've been interviewing women. And in fact, just this year, we put out a video called Silent No More in which the women at that mine speak out about the rapes that they've endured at the hands of the security. So I wish I could say that Porgra was an isolated incident, but I know of at least one other mine that is very, very similar. And in fact, the way they deal with it is very, very similar. And, you know, and, and Barrick has all kinds of other mines around the world that have got, you know, that are 
constantly being, where they're constantly being accused of human rights abuses, indigenous rights abuses, and environmental transgressions. I just today saw that the Chilean government has ordered the company to shut down the mine that it's got up in the mountains there, and they just had a huge fine because of water contamination around that mine. So it's it's unfortunately a company that has a huge footprint around the world and, and, and a very bad track record. They're in the Philippines? Yes, one of the mines in the Philippines is another one that I work on on a small island called Marinduque, and there the people have actually sued Barrick in the court in Nevada because Barrick has very large holdings in Nevada in the U.S., and that lawsuit is still pending, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. But there, there's three major ecosystems have been destroyed, a bay that they pumped their mine waste into, and two rivers where mine dams that they did have in the mountains there um, burst and filled the Mokpok River and the Block River with, with tailings. Two children were buried. So there's three major ecosystems that have been destroyed on a very, very small Philippine island, and the company, um, yeah, is still fighting, fighting that one in court. And that's the thing, isn't it, with these massive mines, or maybe not quite so massive, the companies promise that they'll rehabilitate the land when it's over, when they leave, but there's no way that it can be done. This is a question, in Papua New Guinea in particular, it's always very, very difficult to properly rehabilitate these huge open pits and the massive amounts of waste that, that, that surrounds them. In, in the Porgara mine in Papua New Guinea... I have no idea how that's even possible. Like, there's no, there's guidelines for rehabilitation of mines. There's standards that have been set up, but, but there's no guidelines or standards that I've ever seen for a mine where the waste is meant to keep emptying itself into the nearby valleys literally for hundreds of years after the mine is closed. That is an, it's like an ongoing mining, ongoing disaster, ongoing catastrophic failure. I mean, normally if a, if a mine waste impoundment, like uh, a tailings impoundment fails, they call it a catastrophic failure, but this catastrophic failure is sort of happening on a daily basis. I have no idea how this can be closed. We've asked Barrick for the closure plans. So companies are supposed to have closure plans that at least set out how they envisioned they would close a mine if they had to, and we've never received the closure plans. Those have just not been made public. Do they sort of see you as a bit of an irritant? in their operations. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. And and in those early years when they were completely denying, even in front of parliamentary committees were denying that, that any of the things we were saying were happening, they were very threatening at that time. They were very, um, you know, we received very threatening letters from them accusing us of libel and slander, you know, which are legal terms that are basically shots across the bow that they may take legal action. You know, in a way, a small NGO like Mining Watch, we only have five staff, we're very small, are supported by having brought in some of the legal clinics, but the legal clinics themselves were, you know, being threatened. The most outrageous things have happened in the course of those years. Now that they have had to come clean and acknowledge at least the, the violence against the women, you know, now they don't sort of take us on in quite the same way. You know, now they just write long, you know, responses to everything we say and, and, and argue why, you know, it's not their fault or they're doing their best or it's a difficult circumstance. But, yeah, they're not as threatening. I mean, just last year, just take one year, last year. So 
one village that's right up against the mine when Jima village was burnt down, burnt to the ground, completely burnt to the ground again by the security forces. This happens periodically. This is a traditional village where people have always lived. They were allowed to stay there when the mine was started, and yet the company does not like them living so close to the pit, so every now and then that village gets burnt down. Also last year, that that 15-year-old boy got run over by one of their callers. They paid for the funeral, and they paid for the autopsy, but there's been no compensation to the family. And last year, they accidentally, I guess, dumped a whole bunch of very corrosive waste in an area where people were panning for gold, like on their waste dump, but in an area where they don't normally dump this corrosive material. People had never seen it before, didn't know what it was. They loaded it into bags, put the bags on their head. It rained, and the um, the runoff from these bags was so caustic that it burned their heads, their backs, down their legs. Literally hundreds of people from two villages were burned. When I got there in December, it was about two months after this had happened, people were bringing these little bags of medicines to me that they were supposed to be taking, but they weren't taking them because they didn't know what it said. The, the, the writing on them was in English. And so, for example, there were antibiotics that they were supposed to take four times a day, every six hours or something like that. And But they couldn't read the bags, and they were afraid to take the, what was inside them because they didn't know what it was. And there were pregnant women and women who just had children, and they didn't know what the effects would be. So the, the mind is extremely cavalier about the harm that it causes. And, and you know, there's these these things that happen every year, and you can't help, when you've been there, you cannot help but walk away and feel like the company does not treat these people like they're really human beings. I, I mean, you know, if this same company were to do this sort of thing here in Canada, it would be a huge scandal. It would be an absolute outrage and a huge scandal. It's, it's really like they treat people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea as though they're not really human. Do the people of Canada know? Is it public knowledge of what this company is well, doing it's overseas? Been, it's been written up. It's been written up in the papers here. So there have been reports on this. In fact, one of our magazines called The Walrus did a whole spread on this issue with the mine, with the Porgro mine, about a year or two ago. It just depends on how many people read The Walrus or, or read the newspapers or even you know can remember. But certainly within civil society, you know, the NGOs in Canada that work on mining are all familiar with this because we've been, you know, talking about these issues for very long. There are many members of Parliament who have met with some of the victims who have come to Canada, including recently the women. Just within the last two years, women have actually presented at the annual general meeting and have, have been reported and, and had their stories written up by the media here, including a, a quite a strong, powerful video that was done by um, Vice magazine here in Canada. And, and civil servants know about the case, and I don't know if your listeners will be aware, but we're trying to create an ombudsperson in Canada, an office that would actually be able to hear complaints from people like the people in Papua New Guinea, and certainly the, um, the political leaders around the creation of this ombudsperson here in Canada are very aware of this case and that this is a case that may well find its way to that body once it's been put in place. Finally, Catherine, the, the licence expires in May next year. What's the best that the people in the vicinity can hope for? Yeah, so it's actually August next year that it expires, and there's right now a huge amount of organising among the community uh, around that, and it's very complicated. I mean, 
you know, just to simplify things but oversimplify things, I would say that there's two approaches to this. There are landowners and, and traditional Ipili people who just feel like enough is enough and the mine should just stop operating altogether and clean up the mess and go away. There are other people who feel like all this harm has been done, all this damage has been done. They're not going to get back what they had, and if the mine goes away, they might end up with nothing. They might end up with just a huge hole in the ground and massive amounts of waste and, and nothing at all. And so they're trying to use this opportunity of the renewal of the permit to, to come up with new agreements that would actually have conditions around remediation of the environment, conditions around health care for the people, around um, benefits to the people, compensate them for their loss of livelihood. So there's kind of both voices are, are, are expressing themselves at the moment. And, at the, and in the meantime, there's the reports being written, there's videos being put out, that people are using social media. I mean, it's a, it's a very changed place than it was in, back in 1989 when nobody even knew that the company was negotiating a deal with the landowners. And even then, the landowners didn't do a bad negotiation, but they, there was no enforcement of the commitments that were made. And, and this is one of the things that people who say the mine should just close down and compensate people for the harm they've endured and clean up the environment and go away, they're saying even if we get a really good deal, even if we get a really good negotiated um, agreement for renewal of, of, the, of the lease, how are we ever going to be able to enforce it? The Papua New Guinea government is, is too weak and doesn't enforce, didn't enforce the first agreement, so how do we know they'll enforce uh, uh, even a very good agreement if we can get one for renewal of the permits? And what some people are simply saying is that they all need to be moved away. They've kind of given up, um, and they, they just feel like the company and the government need to get together and relocate everyone away from that whole, that whole valley, just remove them. Not very edifying, is it, the whole issue? No, it's it's almost impossible to see a happy outcome here. It's so extreme. The environmental impacts are so extreme. The human rights impacts are so extreme. The destruction of culture, the destruction of, you know, people will tell me how they used to, what, what their cultural traditions used to be, how men and women used to relate to each other, um, how, where people used to live. You know, they point to the waste flows and say, my village is under there. They tell us about sacred sites that they used to have and dances that they used to have, and that's all under the waste now, and so they've stopped doing those those rituals. And it, It's a complete destruction. And the way people are living now, they themselves say, we live like cockroaches or we live like rats, and we're treated like cockroaches or rats, like we're all crammed together and we're unhealthy and desperate. I'm sure they appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing with them. Yeah, we have very strong relationships with the people there. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, those ever changing, and they're very long-term. I mean, both Mining Watch and the Harvard Legal Clinic and the Columbia Legal Clinic, you know, we, we, we're not going to give up on these people. We're going to keep working together, and we're going to keep trying to do what we can to raise awareness about this issue, but also put pressure on the company. Um, but it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's very tough. I mean, these companies have a lot of power and are very resistant to pressure. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. Thank you for caring about this. And um, we'll, I'll send you more information and we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. 
And that's Catherine Coomins from Mining Watch Canada. That's all I have time for today. It's just on six o'clock, time for Done by Law. But I will be back at four o'clock next Tuesday. Bye for now. <laughs>